Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Alex Fullerton. We're at the Fullerton Wines Tasting Room in Portland. Uh, it's May 21st, 2021. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, biggest question, is why wine? Yeah, and so, um, excellent question. Um, I'll go back a little. So I was born in Denmark to a Swedish mom and uh, half American, half Danish dad. And uh, so they grew up, I always saw wine on the dinner table and we would go on vacation to Burgundy and Champagne and Bordeaux and a lot of pictures of me and my sisters as youngins are next to vines. Um, then we moved to Oregon uh, when I was nine and my parents fell in love with the Oregon wine industry and the wines and uh, when I graduated high school my dad thought that it would be fun to kind of do what he did um, for me. So he took me on a trip to um, uh, Loire Valley, Champagne, and Burgundy. And in Burgundy, no one warned me uh, to keep six feet away from all the winemakers because <laughs> they have a very contagious bug called the wine bug. So I caught the wine bug from, uh, from Laurent Mouton in Givry, um, energetic young winemaker. Um, came back to the US um, and couldn't really afford that much wine, had a fake ID. And when I lost my fake ID, my friends and I started homebrewing beer. Uh, but I was always kind of more interested in wine. So um, ended up graduating from U of O with an econ degree, but got a job at Penner Ash as I was finishing uh, my last few classes for that. And fell in love with the wine industry, with the people, with the culture. And um, so kind of never looked back from there. Went and worked a harvest in New Zealand. and. Penner Ash took me back, um, so I got to work under Lynn uh, and Brian Irvine, um, who are, were amazing mentors. And uh, then I got a job at Bergstrom, and uh, again, Josh Bergstrom and Travis Bonilla, just amazing people that they're willing to tell you their deepest, darkest secrets <laughs> and everything they've learned. Um, and then in 2012, my parents, or I should say, my dad and I, tricked my mom into starting a wine company. <laughs> and uh, here we are uh, nine years later, and my parents are not retired. We are, we are full on in the wine industry, all three of us, and learning every day. That's kind of, there's a few more backstories, but that's kind of my intro into wine. I'm curious, once, once you caught the wine bug in Burgundy, tell me about learning wine, about both, both kind of educationally, but also just like developing your palate. Tell me how that, how that process worked for you. Yeah, so initially it was, the wine bug was just interest in wine and didn't have much to do with wine making. And luckily, luckily for me, my dad's cellar, he was buying Burgundy and Bordeaux when it was still affordable. So he has had um, old, amazing bottles to share and I've gotten to meet a bunch of amazing people um, throughout the world. Wine drinkers are unique in that they'll, they'll share uh, their most hidden gems with really anyone as long as they see passion. Mm -hmm. So it started with me kind of trying to develop my palate and 
also with beer. We got into a lot of different beers and um, just tasting food, all sorts of things to kind of sharpen the palate. Um, but then I got really into the production side. And um, so through brewing beer, we became kind of beer nerds. We now, my two best friends and I have kind of a mini professional brewery setup. Um, toys that you should not have when you're only brewing 15 gallons at a time, but uh, fun toys to have nonetheless. So got really into that and then um, wanted, wanted to do something in fermentation or something, something hands-on. Um, so the job at Penner Ash kind of was an aha moment that, mm -hmm. oh, it's wine that I'm a lot more interested in. It's, I don't like following one recipe and perfecting one recipe. I kind of like when you're going with the flow and every vintage is different and there, there's no recipe, but you're still kind of learning, um, learning the process mm -hmm. behind it and learning um, how it's the, the mechanism mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rather than the recipe. So starting with with Pinner Ash, uh, I'm curious about the kind of your your introduction to to the winemaking process and what 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 surprised you about it, what what excited you about it, and and about learning learning from people like Brian and Lynn. It's a, coming from beer. The thing that surprised me the most was how how dirty it was. And and Pinner Ash is a clean winery, so I mean you are. There's, you can make wine and not worry about sanitation and probably have it turn out okay um, if the wine gods are on your side. Mm -hmm. um, but Penarash being, they're very clean and um, make the wine um, to a very high standard in my opinion, but it was still so kind of dirty and everything can, everything can come. Like in beer, you don't touch your hand on something, but in wine, it's, you're always touching it and you're working with it and you're feeling it and the f kind of the first thing I remember seeing is Lynn walk up and just stick her hands into a ferment. I thought, this is fun. <laughs> and I remember also falling into a ferment, um, a smaller one, so it was, it was safe. Wasn't wearing the right shoes. Um, and coming up like destroyed, thinking I had ruined the wine because mm -hmm. I fell into it. And they were, they were worried of, I was safe. Not at all worried about the wine. And then I brought up I, my fear that I had ruined the wine, and they kind of laughed at me. <laughs> so obviously, a, a large amount of physical labor involved. Tell me about like your first kind of first memories of of, of working in New Zealand, working at Pinner Ash. What what was your role, and what 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 excited you about that part of the job? Um, definitely initially grunt labor. Um, and what was exciting about Pinner Ash is really, even though I knew nothing, they were showing me all aspects of it, and. And obviously not all aspects, but I do feel like I got to do mm -hmm. my first vintage do a whole lot of different things. Enough to where I kind of uh, lied when I got to New Zealand and uh, said that I was very familiar with the presses. So they, they put me on uh, running two presses for that harvest and <laughs> a, a lot of learning to do, but learning comes fast when, when you have a lot of time. A lot of hours equals a lot of learning. Mm -hmm. What was the experience like in New Zealand versus Oregon? What were, what were the biggest differences for you? Um, size. Mm -hmm. So New Zealand, I worked at a winery where 
when they, for example, when they asked what uh, Penarash's case production was, uh, 20,000 cases at the time, my manager laughed and said, we spill that <laughs> in a year. <laughs> and then also looked at the other Kiwis and he was like, you know a winery is small if they measure their size in cases. And in Oregon, the only, you'll only ever hear wineries measured in cases. Hmm. And our, our biggest wineries are quite small compared to the winery I worked at, uh, Drylands, hmm. which is a um, sister property to Kim Crawford. So it's a Sauvignon Blanc that's available at pretty much any grocery store in the US. Mm -hmm. And so got to make a lot of mistakes because it doesn't really matter that they, they've moved so much juice through. You get to try kind of everything and, and hone random things that you need as skills, like racking a tank. Mm -hmm. It's a little different when you're racking 200,000 liters on walkie-talkies than 2,000 liters. But once you get to the end and kind of how to run things and how to, how to do it without introducing too much oxygen if you don't want oxygen and simple things like, like sparging mm -hmm. with inert gases. Mm -hmm. Got to learn a lot of how to do that, not just on a small scale, but on a large scale mm -hmm. as well there. Mm -hmm. And uh, got used to not sleeping as much in New Zealand as well, Ma mainly by my own choice because I worked night shift and so I'd be out surfing in the mornings and be out sightseeing. I have, I have since, since come to appreciate sleep a lot more. Something we don't always get during harvest, but it's an important part of learning as well. You don't, you don't learn how to make wine unless you're also sleeping at some point. <laughs> So at that point, you'd seen kind of the, the small boutique Oregon winery. You'd seen the giant New Zealand uh, wine, wine factory. Did you have an idea at that point? Excuse me for a second. Did you have an idea at that point uh, what you wanted to do? Was, at that point, were you, are, were you thinking wine as a career? And if you were, were you thinking of where you wanted to be and what you wanted to do? Um, yes and no. So I was definitely thinking wine, at least for the time being. And I was, I was also definitely thinking I'd keep working in wine, but I had, I kind of had no idea. And then just the longer I worked in the industry and the more people I met, specifically in the Oregon wine industry, but in, in the industry as a whole, it's a good selector for excellent people mm -hmm. um, around the world. Mm -hmm. um, I, I figured I want to stay in this industry. These, this lifestyle is lovely. These people are lovely. Mm -hmm. But it kind of, it took a few years, about a year longer until I, a, a lot of my dad and I talking um, and kind of thinking, should we try to start a winery? And in 2012 when we did start it, I, I will say I, I wasn't, um, I, I was ready to jump in, but it was kind of like, oh, sure, we can make some wine. And I was still working at Bergstrom mm -hmm. when we started our own winery. And then it, it, within that first year is when it got really serious. Mm -hmm. And I figured, okay, we're making wine, we gotta start selling it, we'll start making more. And mm -hmm. it's snowballed into what it is Sure, today. absolutely. So I have a lot of questions about getting started at Fullerton, but I want to talk about, stop and talk about Bergstrom first. Uh, compare and contrast Bergstrom with your previous experiences. What did you learn there that you didn't already learn, and what, what was different about it than the other places you'd worked? Um, I got to do a lot more 
um, farming. So um, Bergstrom had me in, in the fields kind of all summer long. And I, I really fell in love with being in the vineyards initially at Bergstrom. And they have such a fun, cohesive team as well. They're, I think they worked maybe longer hours than I had uh, worked before, but it didn't really feel like it. It felt like a family. I actually had gotten uh, also my best friend. Um, he needed a job, so I'd gotten him a job at Penarash the previous year, and then again, he wanted to work harvest, so he, worked, he joined the Bergstrom team. And so great people slash one of my very best friends working with me. Mm -hmm. And we all, I mean, we all got sent out into the fields and everyone got to do a little bit of everything. Until it got, I also learned from Bergstrom that once you're in the thick of harvest, stop trying to have everyone do everything. It's okay to just focus and have one dedicated person be pressing white grapes and once you get to pressing reds have one person on the press and one person barreling down. And mm -hmm. so learn how to operate a little more efficiently, uh, efficiently on a smaller scale from them. Mm -hmm. So that, that then was your first real experience in the vineyards. I'm, I'm curious, tell me about what appealed to, to you about that and, and what the work was like. Um, so I, I love being outside. I always was outside as a kid and remember my mom calling to the, the neighbor kids, like, it's time to come in for dinner. <laughs> you guys are done. Um, so being outside, getting sunshine, kind of all, you feel the, the dopamine and all those happiness chemicals. And it's just lovely. I mean, our summers are amazing. And um, it also brings it, when you're, if you're stuck in one aspect of something, you. It can be, it's not as motivating. If you're, for example, on a, working on a factory line, if you're just doing the same thing over and over versus if you get to see whole parts of the picture and see it more holistically. Mm -hmm. So I had been focusing on winemaking, but in my opinion, the more important part is what happens in the fields. Obviously, a lot of things happen in the winery, but the fields and the growing and everything that's happening right now is wildly important. Mm -hmm. Even what happened last year during the growing season is important for this year's crop. Mm -hmm. And so bringing it in and getting the whole picture, but also kind of getting to the roots of how to make good wine. Because mm -hmm. Lynn brought me out in the vineyards for sampling, and I mean, she's a wealth of knowledge. So I knew she was very focused on the vineyards. Um, and I, I knew all good winemakers were focused on the vineyards, but getting the chance to be out in the vineyards we were working with and actually doing some of the work, like some leaf pulling, some mm -hmm. fruit dropping, mm -hmm. and learning more about the process in the vineyard was, that lit a light. And we had actually planted a few Chardonnay vines already ourselves. And so we had planted 22 vines. And after that, um, it grew to 468 vines in my parents' backyard and another uh, 260 some up in my parents' neighbor's house. <laughs> so it got me, uh, got us itching to grow grapes mm -hmm. and got us itching to learn more 
about, about growing grapes, which, mm. as stated, is, is the most important part of the puzzle. So when, as, you're, as the idea for starting Fullerton Wines is, is coming about, what, what was the vision at the beginning? What, what was the goal that you had and, and how did you sort of see it playing out? What were the first steps you took? So it's been a work in progress, but one thing we've always, always wanted to do is kind of explore the Willamette Valley through the diversity of the AVAs. And, um, and with that, kind of working with each individual vin vineyard mm -hmm. to express the uniqueness of each vineyard and each vintage. And so we've always kind of tried to spread out throughout the valley where we source our fruit from. We've had a home base. We started making wine in Portland. And so um, had kind of a home base close to Penner Ash and Bergstrom, mm -hmm. sourcing fruit from Shehala Mountains, Ribbon Ridge, and, and um, Yamhill Carlton. Mm -hmm. um, but also, uh, we have a soft spot for the Dundee Hills and for the Eola Amity Hills specifically mm -hmm. for me. Um, so we've wanted to diversify and source from all of the AVAs, mm -hmm. and those are expanding. Mm -hmm. So that's something we're, in 2021, we'll be making wine from every single sub-AVA. So we're, we'll finally have uh, achieved that part of the goal. And we've also always been very experimental. So I've been fortunate enough to have mentors that are some of the some of my favorite winemakers in the valley um, also at the southeast wine collective we've had excellent people to ask like tom monroe and Hubach, mm -hmm. and for a completely fresh take from from i think everyone else vincent uh, frisky is i've asked that man i have picked his brain so many times <laughs> and it's just great to have a wealth of knowledge you can pull from um, so yeah, we've always explored stylistically. We've kind of looked backwards at old school techniques that I think the, the Pinot Noir producers of America, like especially the old school California Pinot makers, really did bring back a lot of old school techniques that were falling out of favor. And then we've also always had an eye on the future. So new, new technology, new toys, uh, since our first vintage, actually since before our first vintage, since our 2011 garage wine, we've used these rotator barrels. So they're big 500 liter punch-ins with a latch up top that you can fill with grapes and then they sit on a stand with casters. So instead of punch-downs or pump-overs, you spin the barrel. <laughs> and uh, just a unique style of fermentation and you can do different, you can actually do true carbonic maceration in them and pressurize whole clusters. Um, so we, we love to play. And if it works, we stick with it. If it doesn't work, we, we don't stick with it. So <laughs> playing, but also learning from our mistakes. Mm -hmm. and, and learning the mechanism behind things. Because again, with wine, it's not a recipe. Everything, all the factors are always going to be different. Mm -hmm. and so a recipe won't help you, but knowing mechanism mm -hmm will help you a lot. So take me through the process of getting started then, of, of figuring out 
what the first steps were to start a brand and, and to secure grapes and, and to find a place to make wine and all, all design a label, all the things you had to do. And, and did you feel you were ready for all those steps or what, what were the biggest kind of challenges for you in the beginning? Uh, so uh, tr truth is I was not ready. We were not ready. Um, but you will also probably never be ready. Um, it, at least on the time frame that we're working with. I think maybe, maybe I'd feel ready if uh, I had had 15 vintages under my belt, which now I'm getting, now I'm close to that number, and I do now feel very ready. But initially there was, well, I have to thank all of, all the names I've said before already and, and some more names for really being awesome. And I mean, I've called people at midnight with questions, kind of freaking out during harvest, and they're, they're like, sit down, Alex, breathe. It's not rocket science, it's rosé. <laughs> um, and I've had the opportunity to learn faster than I think I ever would have if we didn't start the company, but, but no, I did not feel like I was ready initially. <laughs> But luckily, thanks to all the amazing people, that, that didn't actually matter quite so much. So in terms of the rest of it, uh, how, how did you find grapes? And how did you find, where, how did you find a place to make wine? And, and what was the idea for sort of quantity and growth of, of how much wine you were going to make? Um, so finding grapes, that's the most important part. Um, some vintages, it's been easier than others. Um, so we, we kind of lucked out 2012. We uh, started working with just Furcrest Vineyard and Yamhill Carlton, so um, old vines. Some of the vines are older than I am. And uh, just really nice vineyard that maintains perfect acid. Kind of a lot of what we like in wine, Furcrest has naturally. So we got to make high acid, um, kind of crunchy Pinot for mm -hmm. our first vintage. And then, um, through connections and through knowing people is where we started finding newer vineyards. So we were, we were introduced through the Crofts from Josh Bergstrom. Mm -hmm. And then I fell in love with uh, Mamtazi Mesera when I tasted, uh, Tamina poured me something and I have it, I, I think it was uh, 2008 James Sheed um, I haven't written down, but it just blew my socks off. And I thought maybe, maybe we should go find some grapes from that vineyard. And so Mumtazi has been one of our um, favorite single vineyards uh, that we've worked with, that are favorite amongst our customers and amongst us. Mm -hmm. And from there, we've kind of branched out and uh, been very kind of picky and slow. We also, we do have a second label. So we've had to find um, a second label called Three Otters. So we have had to go out and find some more vigorous sites capable of producing a little more per acre mm -hmm. for that site. So that's been great for exploring all the lesser known areas of the Willamette Valley. And there, I mean, there are some really, really lovely pockets for growing grapes in the southern bit of the valley that mm -hmm. I think, I mean, there, there are places that are known now, but I think some places that are going to be discovered and particularly uh, we make the wine in Corvallis. Now we'll say some of the grapes grown in Philomath area 
are pretty exciting to me, especially since there's, uh, there's some volcanic soils down there and a lot of coastal wind that comes in from down there as well. So a little mimicking maybe uh, Mumtazi or Eola Amity Hills with windy sites and volcanic soil. You mentioned that the first, the first batch of, or the first vintage you made it had, it was the kind of wine you want to make. How did you, did you know at that point, this is the kind of wine we want to make, this is, this is what our wines are going to be like? So we, we kind of came at it thinking that we were going to start with a little bit bombastic of a style, a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. And then we were going to refine the style from there. Um, and kind of along the lines, I think I got this idea in my head, because if, if you're going to start home brewing, um, IPAs are a great way to start, because there's a lot of antimicrobial properties and hops and just kind of higher alcohol, so it's, it's more stable. So I kind of came at it thinking if we make a slightly bigger Pinot, maybe there will be less chance of flaws and um, then we will refine it from there. So it's our, the style of our 2012s is definitely pretty big compared to what our house style has become. Um, but I've also learned that I'm totally okay with big um, as long as there's acid to balance it out. Mm -hmm. The thing we don't like is flabby wines. And luckily we're making wine in Oregon, so we, it's a little easier not to make flabby wines. And then there, again, big, I don't have, like I like big wines, but there are, Pinot Noir maybe shouldn't be a big wine. Maybe if you want a big wine, maybe there are other varieties than Pinot Noir for you. <laughs> so we've, we're definitely chiseling down. I don't think we're, we don't try to use masculine or feminine generally, because what does that mean? But I think we're, we're kind of, We've found our house style and it's mm -hmm. not on the super, super light end and it's definitely not on the super heavy end. It falls somewhere in between. You mentioned the, starting with the Southeast Wine Collective. Uh, tell me about, about making wine there, about fi finding them and, and, and working at that space. Yeah, so um, it's, it, it was a, the perfect place for us to end up. It, um, it was one little winery, not, not terribly much bigger than uh, like two of, two of our tasting rooms put together, um, where 10 different winemakers were making wine under one roof. So chaos is a, a word that you could describe, but a very good chaos, a, a positive chaos. Like you feel, you feel good feelings when you go in there and see everyone busy and running around. Um, and if you want 20 different answers, ask 10 different winemakers the same question. So in terms of learning a lot of different thoughts and um, a lot of dogmatic feelings from people and a lot of kind of laissez-faire feelings, um, and, about what different winemakers think about all aspects of wine. I don't think we could have chosen a better place um, to just get the whole 360 degree window of Oregon wine mm -hmm. from as natural as they come 
of like I will not add anything. It will be fine. To like I'm on top of this and like nothing is going to be fermenting these grapes other than what I want fermenting these grapes. Mm -hmm. So we got to see kind of the whole process of all of those different styles mm -hmm. for a few years too because it's one thing is harvest and harvest is very important but good winemakers spend a lot of time I mean you have to top off the wine you have to you have to take care of the wine throughout the year mm -hmm. and that's where we got to learn all people's different understanding of what it means to take care of the wine over the year and get it ready for bottle You mentioned that you're now making wine in Corvallis. Tell me about the, the transition to that, fi finding a space there and, and, and what, it, what it, that added to your abilities uh, moving from, from Southeast Wine Collective to your new space. Yeah, so um, Southeast Wine Collective, we, we kind of outgrew. Um, and 2013 was a, a huge crop, and we had one particular vineyard that didn't do their crop estimation right, so we kind of filled up a whole section of that winery and... So in 2014, um, a few people moved in and, or moved out, and there was a little more room. But by 2015, it was, it was clear that we probably needed to find another place. So we actually went down to Eugene Wine Cellars for a year. And that was also um, I mean, completely different production style. And, um, and again, multiple winemakers in one roof, so a lot of people to ask questions and a lot of relationships mm -hmm. that are um, valuable to this day. Then we moved up to Corvallis, and we did that to kind of get more bells and whistles. We, there was room available. We shared um, the winery we're in for a year with Soder. So one of, one of the greatest wineries in Oregon, as well, I will say, um, to my taste. And Soder, um, a lot of their technique, um, we, we learned a lot of techniques from them. So they do like to do um, extended maceration. This is kind of down the rabbit hole, but something we really like doing that we directly learned from Soder. Um, so moved into Belle Valley. Um, that was the old winery. And we now share that with a couple other winemakers. And it's, we have plenty of room. There's a, a lot of bells and whistles that weren't in the Southeast Wine Collective or, or Eugene Wine Cellars. And pretty simple things like access to chilling a tank and access to heaters. So we, we now can, we can do everything we want to. Mm -hmm. If there's a wine that's not fermenting and we want it to ferment, we don't have to wait on a, the ability to use a heater because the same heater is also the chiller and someone's chilling. Uh, we can now just heat the tank, get fermentation going. Or opposite, we're not like, oh, this, is, uh, this white wine is getting up into like 68 degrees Fahrenheit, I, would, I wish I could cool it. Yeah. Now it's like, nope, this is temperature controlled at 60 or temperature controlled at whatever we want. So a lot, of, a lot more control, mm -hmm. which is pretty important. You mentioned white wine, so tell me about, in addition to Pinot Noir, what, what else are you working with and how has it changed over the years? Uh, so Chardonnay since 2013, so we started with just Pinot, 
And then we thought we were just going to do Pinot and Chardonnay. And at least we figured we're going to learn how to make Pinot and Chardonnay the way we want to make it before we branch out. And then in 2017, we got a chance to work with uh, the Old Lime Pinot Gris down at Lavelle Vineyard, which used to be called Forgeron Vineyard. Um, and so 1969 uh, Pinot Gris, it's uh, hard to say no. So I convinced my dad we should make rosé out of the Pinot Gris. Um, so we were going to soak on the skins. And the Pinot Gris, um, on the day of harvest, we were down there tasting the old mines. And they tasted so good that I, I was like, Dad, let's make a little bit of white Pinot Gris. And he said, for sure, without a doubt, let's try this. And it was a huge success. So now we make Pinot Gris. Um, in 17 as well, in, actually in 15, we made a little Syrah. But 17, we made some Southern Oregon Syrah. And club members fell in love with the Syrah by the time it was released. So now there's a gap. Um, so we had to start making Syrah again. And we've been moving kind of into the gorge for some stuff. So we're going to make some um, Sauve Blanc and actually cab Sauve from the gorge this year. But in the interest of kind of moving, spreading across Oregon, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we went all the way out to Walla Walla and uh, found some Rocks District Syrah from the Oregon side. So uh, we're, we're trying, to, trying to explore all of Oregon. Mm -hmm. And we also make some Viognier from the Willamette Valley. But we do more kind of fun, low intervention. Uh, we do some orange wine um, and some pet nat with that. And zero edition wines, which is another thing we've always been interested in is zero or low additions. Um, it's. There, I see benefits to sulfur, but I see major benefits to trying to make wine without sulfur as well. And always, the less sulfur you can use, the better. I don't think you'll find any winemaker that disagrees with that. If, if I don't know, if a wine goes bad and you have to add too much sulfur, you, it'll mute the wine permanently. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. limiting inputs is, has always been important to us. Mm -hmm both in the vineyard and in the winery. Sure. You mentioned that, you know, looking back or even maybe at the time, you, you knew you weren't, you weren't quite ready for what the, the challenges that you were, gonna, you, were, you were starting. But I'm curious, tell me about the, your growth as a winemaker and about adding all these different varieties, all these different kind of styles, all these different vineyards. Um, tell me about the, com the comfort level, the confidence for yourself. At what point did you feel confident trying new things, bringing in new vineyards? Uh, Tying new styles. Uh, tell me about that kind of the growth for you uh, personally. Um, I, th I think the comfort has kind of slowly showed up, and kind of seeing, taking yourself out of it because obviously the winemaker is a big part of it. But if you find good grapes, then it's it's more about not messing up the grapes than it is about you 
having the skills to do something. And experience is key. So I, I, I don't feel like I was ready because I didn't have the experience. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we didn't make wines that we're proud of, because we're very proud of the wines we made. I just think um, some of that can be attributed to the people I asked. <laughs> so the mentors and the, the many, many amazing winemakers in the Willamette Valley. Some can be attributed to Oregon being an amazing place to grow grapes. And then some can be attributed to luck. And then some to hard work. Because we, I mean, wine on some level can make itself, but on another level doesn't make itself. Like grapes hanging in a vineyard don't turn into wine. But grapes destemmed in a vat will turn into wine no matter what you do. But the quality of that wine is kind of, and, and the characteristics of that wine. Mm -hmm. So how much, of, how much you do and when you do it is important. And really finding the confidence of knowing when to pull back and when, when to be like, no, something's going wrong. Let's intervene here. Mm -hmm. And that, that's what I think has been building and is probably still building. Mm -hmm. Because I do feel confident now and comfortable, but probably with another 10 years uh, in the book, I'll feel even more confident mm -hmm. and comfortable. So one of the things you mentioned early on was as you were getting started, that, that selling, obviously, a, a challenge, something that something maybe you don't think about initially as you're starting a brand. Tell me about selling wine and about uh, finding a club, finding finding fans, finding members, and and growing your brand uh, through that. What was the most important thing about selling wine early days? Who are you trying to get it to, and and how has that changed over the years? Yeah, so s selling is the hardest part. Um, it's it's not terribly hard to end up with good wine through through all of the things you do. But then selling that good wine, it's, if it's not good, then, it's, then good luck selling it. But if it is good, then still it's going to be a lot of work selling it. And um, so we went initially, um, we started doing tastings at my parents' house in Beaverton, which was lovely because people come in and they're like, am I at the right place? Like, this is awkward. And no, come on in. And you see them like, whoa, this is cool. I'm being welcomed into someone's house. The, the 468 Chardonnay vines are right here. And so we ended up um, with a pretty strong club uh, fairly early on and still have a lot of people that are part of our club now, whatever, uh, seven, seven years after we started, or eight years mm -hmm. after. Um, and really having the ability to have a tasting room was a privilege. Having my parents be, being open to having strangers in their house, um, having Washington County be okay with having strangers in my parents' house. <laughs> All those things were, we lucked out. Without that, it, it would have been way harder. Mm -hmm. So all the small people that are selling um, through distribution and self-distributing everything, that is a grind. Mm -hmm. And those people are, are amazing and hard workers. And I mean, we've, we've been there too, but we, I don't think we were ever as successful at that part as some other of, of my good friends. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Corey Schuster comes to mind 
fantastic personality, mm -hmm. lovely person. And I mean, you meet him, you want to buy his wine, but it's a grind. He's out there meeting and hand selling all of his wines. Mm. And so we, um, we got into distribution and realized we, we kind of needed an, a more affordable Pinot Noir. The market wanted that. And so to be able to get into distribution, we started the Three Otters label. Mm. And that's been, that's, kind of been the only thing that distribution can move on its own without us coming out to help, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense. I mean, a $20 on the shelf Willamette Pinot is, is going to move a little bit. Mm -hmm. But even with a distributor, if you're not out there in the market actively selling and visiting people, you, you do disappear. Mm -hmm. um, so staying, staying on top of it and following up Two things I naturally am not very good at, <laughs> but those have been very important. Mm -hmm. And luckily for us, my dad is good at making sure I follow up and, uh, and following up. And our other, um, our employee number one, who's done a lot of sales for us, also excellent and, and good at following up. And so he's, all three of us have had success, I will say, with distribution, but we've had way more success with direct to consumer. And um, going back to my parents' uh, house in the tasting room, we outgrew that spot. So Washington County was okay with us having up to seven people there at a time. And I do remember one time where it was shoulder to shoulder. Um, there were more than seven people there. Um, so we needed to move, so we found um, this spot that we'd actually looked at a few times and it had there was construction out on the streets and it really wasn't a good spot and then when we finally kind of needed it the construction had stopped hundreds of people had moved into the buildings around maybe thousands um, so it turns out to have been a really good spot for us to land mm -hmm. and really nice bringing us back into Portland um, I, even though we made wine in Corvallis, I, had, I was living in Portland and kind of sleeping in the winery. So port, it's been good to have the home base here. I now spend enough time in the winery that I live in Corvallis. Um, but yeah, so direct to consumer is what really has, we've, especially post COVID, we kind of, when all the restaurants closed, we pivoted and have have focused almost all of our efforts on direct to consumer. I'm going to come back and ask you about 2020 here in a minute, but, I, I, but you, you raised an interesting question there for me, which was the idea that you're now, now you're in Portland, you're in an urban winery setting. Tell me about how this changes your sort of clientele and how, how, you, how you fit into the neighborhood and, and what you do differently here than maybe a, a tasting room in the Valley would do. Yeah, yeah and so, Huge difference actually coming from Beaverton to here. Mm -hmm. um, just the type of customers and how, how we've kind of set up the tasting room. And this has, it's changed a lot how we do things over the years, but it, once we moved into Portland, it became more of a bar and less of a tasting room. And and one thing, if um, another winery is planning on opening in Portland, you can, you kind of have to count on less total kind of wine purchases. People in wine country are 
are more likely to leave with full cases. But you do, you get more people during the off season. Sometimes when it's really nice, people leave the city for the valley and we get slow here. But we've pivoted and kind of turned into more of a restaurant. And that really happened in the beginning of 21. We hired, or end of 20, we hired my next door neighbor, um, the person who has been my roommate the longest out of anyone except for my parents and siblings. <laughs> so one of my best friends. And we've lived together multiple times. And, so, and he's been a chef for a long time. So we've been collaborating. I've been popping bottles, and he's been cooking for pretty much our whole, our whole life, we've been cooking together. He got, um, for a while he was not allowed to cook in my mom's kitchen after we made, decided to make cho chocolate chip pancakes one day. And I, I can understand why. I think I should have also been punished. Uh, no kitchen should look like this <laughs> and be left. Um, but so we, we always cook together and he's now um, our head chef and making a fantastic menu to pair with the wines. And so that's been, that's been the latest pivot, mm -hmm. is more towards full-on wine and food, mm -hmm. sit down. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it has brought in a lot uh, more people, mm -hmm. especially because, uh, so we've got, I don't know um, if I should, it, we haven't announced it yet, but we've got, he hired, Another rock star. So it's two rock stars chefs in there right now. And the food speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. What made that something you wanted to do, the, the food offerings? Was it something you, you sensed a need for, or was it just because the opportunity was there? Yeah, maybe both. We, um, I will say my mom and I were a little more skeptical. And my dad is just high-powered. Um, always willing to try something, and then if it doesn't work out. So, my dad, my dad was the driving force behind this, and I just, when when it started happening, I backed him up, said, "Sure, let's try it." I be, I believe in Jamie. I believe in you. I think you you guys can make this happen. So I have not been a big part of establishing uh, the tasting room as a as a dining destination, but. They're killing it, so they don't need my help. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about 2020 since we've already kind of brought it up. Uh, obviously, a couple a couple big things happened in 2020. So, let's start with the pandemic. Um, kind of immediate reaction for you and kind of how it affected your work life. I'm curious, what was the what was sort of the, the first things you had to deal with, and and what were the changes you had to make throughout the year? So, in initially uncertainty. Um, which is the biggest, I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone's ever dealt with uncertainty like the beginning of 2020. Um, and then we kind of started planning. So we have contracts for most of our um, fruit, but we, kind of, we started talking and changing. So we, we plan on making less wine since initially sales just kind of plummeted. So um, planned on making less wine and shifted to a lot more direct to consumer. Um, we ran a case sale pretty early on, which I think actually kept, was what kept us, kept cash flow coming in. Because before anyone else 
kind of had a uh, COVID sale. We had, we did have a case sale that I think we called it a social distancing sale. And then uh, with the success of that saw that we're going to have to drive a lot of direct to consumer stuff. We're going to have to do a lot of virtual tastings and we're going to plan on making less wine. And so all, all ended up being pretty good decisions in the long run. Mm -hmm. And then as harvest started getting close, we, um, I mean, we felt, I feel more confident now than ever, but it was still with people losing their sense of smell from COVID. And I mean, as the least bad thing that could happen, um, we were very shut off and isolated. So we had rules of no one can come in the winery. Um, I mean, we, didn't, we had kind of, with the other people that make wine in the facility, we had like, agreements of please don't go out and hang out with random people and please be careful. And we kind of formed a bubble. So it was my assistant and we had another guy working um, for us in the winery as well. He, he was kind of a swing employee, but he became winery only so that we could be our, our little crew. And uh, yeah, we were huddled and ready for anything. And um, we got more than, uh, more than we thought we were going to get. We'll just put it that way. And learned a lot more this harvest about a lot of things than, uh, than we thought we would. Maybe than you hoped to. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. Tell me about dealing with the, this harvest. Uh, what, again, what were, the, what were the biggest decisions you had to make and, and the biggest things you had to learn? And, and how did you kind of get through uh, dealing with all of, the, all of the smoke, all the fires around harvest? Yeah, so we picked all our fruit. Um, the fires meant that some sites you could not make red wine. Um, and then there's, there's a huge, so we made some Pinot Noir. We picked some fruit before the fires. So we have some really, really tasty 2020 Pinot Noir. And then we have some really good um, 2020 white Pinot Noirs. And uh, we are selling the Rosé and Pinot Gris. Um, Pinot Gris, we couldn't press every, everything out of it. We kept everything, but fermented it separately. And then some stuff just um, didn't make the final blend. Sure. And for, we fermented things differently as well. So it was, it was a low, low yield already in the vineyards. And then we had low press yields because you couldn't press as much out of the skins. So for Pinot Gris, we actually had some really lovely um, larger Chardonnay puncheons that uh, with low mileage, so some, some oak flavor left. Mm -hmm. And we fermented the Pinot Gris in those. And I've, that's something we for sure will try to do in the future because of how much we, we love what that did to the wine. And overall, you always learn every vintage, or at least that's the goal. But, and I mean, that is no matter what, you learn every day. But we did, I mean, we learned a lot more in 2020 than I think we've learned in any other vintage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And hindsight's 2020, so I know, I know a million things I would do. Um, if, if we get an event like that again, mm -hmm. we are prepared. Yes.
more, more prepared at least. Yeah. In terms of from your own sort of personal sort of the values or, or tastes, uh, what were the what were the limits you were tasting for when you're dealing with when dealing with a smoke mm -hmm. like that that's going to be varied over various various locations and various types of fruit? What was the the, the, the limit for you? How, how did you how did you kind of determine that? Great question. When we did the bucket ferments initially, um, we so the very first ones we did there was we were pretty early, and there was still a lot of smoke in the valley, and we. I brought out with Andrew Bandy Smith, um, the winemaker from Antiquum that we share a facility with, who is just a wealth of knowledge. Um, we were thinking, can you even taste smoke influence if it's in the air? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it was in the winery, um, it was in the air, you couldn't get away from it. So we pulled out bottles that we knew, other bottles from previous vintages, though we knew had smoke impact um, that we both had and we could not taste it. You, we could tell it was there because of a similar type of flavor you get with Britannomyces, mm. but we could not taste any smoke because it was in the air. So we, we were kind of like, okay, good to know. Um, we will wait <laughs> to do any sort of evaluation at all. Mm. And then the bucket ferments, um, we started fermenting them. Um, you ferment them in really warm conditions. So we had the heater on in the bathroom and the warmer, the better. You want the enzymes to, to free up as much of the smoke compounds as you can. But they don't, the bucket ferments, it's hard to really, it's hard to get all of it out and it's hard to get them to be dry. Mm -hmm. um, so any amount of sugar there is going to stop your, pro, your um, enzymes in your mouth from releasing the smoke compounds from their bound form. Um, because they're glycosides, it makes sense, it's a sugar molecule, so if there's sugar, if there's free sugar present, it's gonna inhibit the enzymes that are there in order to create free sugars. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a, it's a thing people know about, it's actually a one way of mitigating smoke influences by leaving a little bit more residual sugar in the wine, and that does help. Um, but that <laughs> means you can't taste it that well in the bucket ferments. And even if you get a bucket ferment dry, that took you however many days, and then it's still, it's still going to increase mm -hmm. for about nine months. And I don't know when you get close to equilibrium, but based on, um, on what we know now, I nine months is a good number then you're kind of at equilibrium, but you're probably there at like six months. But if you're evaluating the wine at four months, it's, it's gonna get smokier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or it's, it, the smoke influence will grow mm -hmm. with time. Uh, so the bucket ferments are a challenge. And having, using just those, you could have a bucket ferment that's like, oh, mild smoke influence, we can make red wine but the red wine's gonna have higher influence. If you have a bucket ferment with like zero noticeable smoke influence, it's, yes, the wine will probably be good, but someone will probably be able to, to taste smoke in it. Mm -hmm. It's very variable. Mm -hmm. And then we have also found that from day to day, you are more or less susceptible. Mm -hmm. 
So it's pretty tricky. And there's, there's a lot of compounds like that where you can, you can zero you can zero your palette in, or your palette is zeroed in at different levels. So from day to day, susceptibility can be different. And then I also learned that I'm, like, I'm on the medium susceptibility. There are people on very high susceptibility to smoke influence where they get, they pick it up just mm -hmm. very fast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And luckily for me, my assistant and uh, Andrew Bandy-Smith are very susceptible to it. So we have uh, those pallets to test. Sure. So with all that in mind, all, all that you learned when it comes to making red wine in 2020, obviously you mentioned you've, you've done some picking before the smoke, you have other grapes from other parts of the state. What's, what's the outlook for you? and What do you think the outlook is for Oregon in terms of 2020 red wine production? Um, as a, as a state, I think there's the Willamette Valley was potentially a little more impacted than some other areas. Um, I've, I've tasted some stuff from down south where I, I feel like I can get a little, but nothing distracting. Um, and then it, it was highly variable based on where you were. So it, it's like close to the Van Duzer corridor wasn't as bad. Um, I think up against the coast range was less influenced. Mm -hmm. And so the, yeah, the diversity is pretty, pretty interesting mm -hmm. in, in impact. And then high elevation was, seemed also to be more mm -hmm. impacted than lower elevation, which is something that they've found in California. Mm -hmm. And then um, there are certain grapes that are more susceptible, uh, Petit Verdot, is more susceptible, but this year we found that Chardonnay in the same vineyard seems to be less impacted than other varietals or varieties. So that was pretty interesting. So tell me about, we're going to kind of zoom out on in the industry a little bit here. I'm, I'm curious, what are the from when you first came into the Oregon wine industry, what, what are the, the, the biggest changes you've seen in, in Oregon wine? What's, what's different about it now versus when you started? And, and as you look ahead, what's, what's coming next? Um, so definitely a lot of investment from outside, um, from California, from uh, Burgundy, um, and a, a lot of newcomers. I mean, we kind of joined. We, I had gotten a taste of the wine industry, but then in 20. 2012, when we started uh, the company, there, there was an, an influx of a lot of us. So we joined at a time when the amount of wineries boomed. And um, it was a pretty interesting time because a lot of new small wineries making a lot of interesting, making a lot of non-traditional wines, uh, non-Pinot Noir wines. Mm. and. Yeah, kind of the style of the Willamette Valley seems to have just broadened even more. And I think it was broad to begin with, but it definitely has broadened. And then our vintages are getting warmer. So what we can do, we're, we still have cool vintages, but we have a lot more warm vintages now, and we have vintages that are hotter than, than ever. Mm -hmm. So stylistically, I think we're just opening up 
And grape-wise, what people are growing, I think obviously you should keep growing Pinot Noir. It's, I like it. I think we do a good job of growing it here. I think Chardonnay as well. Um, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I might have uh, talked crap about Pinot Gris. I will take those words back. They're, uh, even, even six tons uh, to the acre Pinot Gris can make delicious drinkable wine, mm -hmm. and there's a time and place for that. Um, and yeah, all the like Trousseau, uh, Gamay is exploding, and I think we have a lot. I think people should plant Sauv Blanc, actually. I've uh, just talked to a grower about planting us half an acre of Sauv Blanc, mm -hmm. And I think Willamette Valley Sauvignon Blanc is exciting. Maybe even some of the other um, Loire varietals. Mm -hmm. uh, Cabernet Franc, there are clones that can grow really well in the Willamette Valley. And, and like Scott Frank from Bow and Arrow, he makes 50% uh, Cab Sauv, 50 Cab Franc. And it's delicious. Mm -hmm. I love that wine. <laughs> Air guitar. A drink. I drink a bottle of that at least uh, at least once a year. I try I try the new vintage just to see, and I think that's an that is an inspiration, that wine. And not that we're going to start making Willamette Valley Cab Sauv or Cab Franc, but just it is inspiring that he can make that approachable of a wine with no intervention mm -hmm. from old wine Cab Sauv. Growing outside of uh, Corvallis, actually, mm -hmm. and then a cool site, Johan Cab Franc. So it kind of flips a lot of uh, what I thought I understood upside down. Mm -hmm. So that in mind, what, what will the industry look like in the coming years? What, what changes do you foresee, and, and maybe what are you looking forward to, or, or are you afraid of or fearful of? Um, so fearful of our, glo of our globe, I mean. Warmer weathers and wildfires and fierce storms and all the things that are coming. But I do think the Willamette Valley is in a, we're located well and we're gonna have a climate for Pinot Noir for the foreseeable future. And, but we're also gonna have a climate for uh, like Willamette Valley Syrah, lovely stuff. And I think that's just gonna get better and better. Um, but I, ho I just hope that we keep our cool climate at, at, some, at a level that can still be called a cool climate. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm forever optimistic, but there, if you're not also a little pessimistic, then you gotta have both. Sure, sure. What about from a growth side? Obviously, you, you mentioned you, you were part of a, a massive growth in the Oregon wine industry in the, in the past couple of decades, especially the last decade. What do you see for the size of the state's industry as you look ahead? Um, I mean, I think we're still going to stay relatively small. I think the investments that have come in are still making wine at a kind of hand level. Um, and like Bollinger coming in now and buying Ponzi, I think is Congratulations, guys, nice work. But it's still going to be Ponzi. Mm -hmm. Louisa is still going to be there mm -hmm. making beautiful wines. Mm -hmm. And I, I still, everyone that's come in to the Oregon wine industry and done it well has done it with collaboration and open arms. Mm -hmm. And I think if anyone tries to come in any other way, it's not 
it's not going to work for them. It's such a tight-knit community and industry that I think we're gonna, it's so tight-knit, I don't see that changing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's knit so tightly that no one can undo, undo the yarn. And if they wanna be part of it, they're just gonna have to stitch themselves in. I like that. that's a good metaphor. That's that's solid. I like that. Um, what about for yourself and for Fullerton? What 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 are you seeing for the future? What are your kind of hopes and goals, and and, and and for yourself and as well as the growth of the business? Um, so for the future, um, like I said, we're planning on our goal is to explore the whole Willamette Valley through kind of the lens of the different AVAs, um, but also start exploring more of Oregon, um, but kind of medium term, uh, we do want to have an estate vineyard and a, a facility of our own. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, there's a lot you can learn about the facility and making it work the way we want it. And there's a lot of people that have some crazy good ideas of, that make, make your life easier. But um, the I don't know, finding the right spot, finding somewhere where we want to grow grapes. Maybe it's an established vineyard, maybe not, but somewhere to call home and somewhere to really get to play around mm -hmm. full on in the vineyards. And we, and we work with growers that are more than happy to do whatever we want in the fields. But somewhere of our own that's a little bigger is definitely on the, on the map. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere, I think we'll always keep our tasting room in Portland. We have a great following, uh, great club members, but another, another place to mm -hmm. come and taste. Mm -hmm. You can right now come join me and James in Corvallis and uh, taste in our 55 degree barrel room, <laughs> get the, the true authentic experience, but having somewhere where we can do that, mm -hmm. that eventually is our own, mm -hmm. where we can, we, we have a little garden that we farm next to the vineyard mm -hmm. for food in the kitchen here, but growing that and really having like not just farm to table, but eventually having like everything you're eating came from this property grown with the world and the environment in mind and and then horticulture also, or sorry, permaculture also interests me. So having not just vineyard and animal husbandry, like Antiquum Farm, they, they have this grazing-based viticulture that is just, quite frankly, awesome. And working, working sheep into the vines, he, he trains them by uh, feeding them a fresh grape shoot every year and an in, uh, Volsent. Mm -hmm. um, so they get sick from eating the grape shoots, so they think, don't eat that. And as long as there's things on the ground to forage, they're not going to go back up to the grapes. Mm -hmm. And that is, I mean, not having to drive a diesel tractor down the road, if it's just being mowed for you, that's a big win. And now uh, there are electric tractors coming out too, so that's something I've been keeping a very close eye on. Uh, there's, the technology is alive and well in China, but there's been a lot of work blocking the Chinese companies from entering the US, and there's now a US company 
the Monarch tractor. So I think that's going to change farming quite a bit once, once it's carbon neutral running a tractor mm. and tilling. That, that'll change my thoughts on mowing and tilling quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And right now we're in our little Ivy Slope vineyard. We're on year three of no mow, no till. So it's just really high cover grass, cover crop that we fold down and kind of step down. And it, that could work theoretically in a vineyard if you had a big heavy roller. I know some people do that. Mm -hmm. But that, that's something that's always interested me. And having a site where we can do like full on experiments of one acre like this, one like this, one like this, and see what the vines do and see what's better mm -hmm. is I, it will be fun rather than just no we have this plot we're going to stop mowing it and see if it even works <laughs> which it does work it's just uh the grasses don't always want to stay down <laughs> from from my body weight but maybe a little heavier thing heavier and and another so an idea behind this is there's big farms in like the Midwest that do this, that have these rollers mm -hmm. where you grow enough of a cover crop and then the roller kind of breaks the stock. And then you have a layer of mulch to trap water and no more leaves growing that, that transpire water out of the ground. Interesting. A lot of ideas, you have a lot of ideas. Do you have a place in mind where you'd like this vineyard to be part of the state? We, we are open. So that's the fun thing is, I love the Willamette Valley. I love the Yolamity Hills, but I also love uh, the closer side of Hood River. Excellent Pinot Noir. So if we end up in Hood River, we'll, we'll still always make Willamette Valley wine. But <laughs> the one, we're going to stay in Oregon. Oregon is home. Oregon's my favorite place on earth. So that's non-negotiable. And then closer, for me, preferably, Western Oregon. Mm -hmm. I like it a little cooler and wetter. All right. Last question for you. We're going to get a little philosophical for you. Uh, tell me in your mind what the, the role of wine in society is. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, wine in society is a unifier. It brings people together from all walks of life and yeah, it, it almost, we, we like to say wine speaks a universal language. So you don't even have to be able to understand the other person that's sitting next to you, but sharing a glass of wine, there is a deeper connection and understanding there. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it's a bridge between many different cultures and it, it keeps expanding. I mean, if wine wasn't so popular, then, multi then all the cultures that grow wine today wouldn't have started growing wine. They would have done, they would have done something else. Mm -hmm. There's something lovely and romantic, specifically about sharing the same bottle of wine. That's why I love Magnums and three liters. Because if you're with a, with a big group of people and you're drinking from the same bottle, there, there's something romantic and lovely about that. Mm -hmm. Love that. Uh, so all the questions that I have for you, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? No, I think, 
questions were amazing. Well, well thank you. I'm very flattered. <laughs> uh, appreciate your time today. Appreciate your hospitality, showing off this great space and sharing some great answers and stories with us. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Cool. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast